the National Archives podcast series, The Fleet and Marriages Registers, presented by Audrey Collins. Well, welcome to the National Archives, just in case there are some of you who haven't been here before. Uh, Now, the Fleet Marriage Registers, I like to think these are the, the most misnamed series of records that we have, because they're not all from the area known as the Fleet. They contain a number of baptisms as well as marriages, and they're not all registers because they also include a number of notebooks and account books. What they do contain, though, mainly are records of irregular or clandestine marriages, which took place in London. Occasionally, the, uh, they went out into the, the, the surrounding country, but the vast majority of the marriages that you'll find here are recorded in, uh, as taking place in, in London. Now, they are irregular or clandestine marriages, And these are marriages that were against canon law. That means that the church didn't like them, but they could still be perfectly valid in English common law for legal purposes. Um, You you have, at any given time, various different bits of law in operation, and sometimes they're in in conflict with each other. And this is very much the case with uh, the laws regarding marriage. It was very, very confusing. If you actually read, uh, there's an excellent book on the subject uh, by Lawrence Stone called The Road to Divorce, and details of that are in your handout, and we have copies here in the library. Um, You'll find that that's, it was a very, very confused picture indeed. And um, there were a lot of moves to try and clear this up for a variety of reasons. And like a lot of significant changes in the law, it often had money at the bottom of it. The reason that the great and good, i.e. the people who sat in Parliament, were actually concerned about the state of marriage law was because it was really messing up questions of inheritance. And if you didn't know what the law was and what you could do about it, you could spend an awful lot of money on solicitors trying to untangle marriages that you thought somebody shouldn't have got into, or just establishing what the legal position was. It was the greyest of grey areas. So that was one of the reasons. Another reason was that if you've got clandestine or irregular marriages, that meant that people were not marrying in the Church of England. And the Church of England was therefore not getting its cut. Now, clandestine or irregular marriages, they may have accounted, and it's very vague because nobody really knows, they may have accounted for up to one-third of English marriages at their peak, which is roughly the first half of the 18th century. These were not all in London, not all in the fleet. You will find them all over the country. But it was where ordained clergymen, who may or may not still have been in a, in a living, they, once ordained, were able to perform marriages and charge fees for it. And you will often find, if you look in the the registers of some uh, perfectly ordinary Church of England parishes, you will sometimes see a tremendous surge in the number of marriages, out of all proportion to the size of the population and the surrounding area, for a brief time, possibly because the clergyman who was there decided to turn his church into a a marriage shop and undercut all his neighbours. I came across this myself once when I was just looking through some parish registers for um, Little Stanmore when there is a a period, and it doesn't last for very long, it's only about a decade or so, when the number of marriages there is absolutely phenomenal, and then it drops off to a normal level. It's a very small parish, although it is conveniently placed on the main road north out of London, so it was quite convenient to slope off to, I guess. But you do find this at various places all over the country, and that's often the reason when you get an odd pattern of marriages that there is some, some local person who is setting up as a as an undercutter of, of his neighbours. But the place that this really happened the most was in the area round the, the, the Fleet Prison in London. That's just the most popular one. Now, these marriages effectively, not entirely, but the most part were ended by Lord Hardwick's Marriage Act of 1753, which came into effect early in 1754. And there was an almighty great rush just before the, uh, the act came into force of people rushing to take advantage of their, their last chance to get married in a, under a clandestine or irregular marriage. Now, clandestine means it was in secret, and irregular means it just was not according to all the rules. And they did come in a variety of guises. Essentially, to, to marry according to the way the church liked it, you needed to have witnesses, 
you needed to announce that you were getting married and it needed to be in a, a proper licensed place with a proper clergyman. But irregular marriages, provided people contracted publicly, could still be regarded as valid in a court of law and when there was a matter of inheritance to be sorted, then they could still be valid, much to the annoyance of the church. Now, the area that was particularly popular for this, and the reason they're called the fleet marriages, is that the, the most popular centre was in an area known as the rules of the fleet. Physically, this is bounded by Farringdon Street, which was then called Fleet Market, Ludgate Hill, Old Bailey, and Fleet Lane. And on that map there, you see it's the, the, the four streets concerned are roughly the sort of bucket shape. Ludgate Hill is still there. Fleet Market, now Farringdon Street, obviously, is still there. So is Old Bailey. Not quite sure about Fleet Lane, but it probably is. And that was the area which was known as the rules of the fleet. Now, the fleet was a prison. It was a debtor's prison. There were quite a lot of those, and the fleet was just the biggest and the most populous. And it so happened that quite a lot of the, the, the prisoners in the fleet were unfrocked or basically fairly dodgy clergymen. And originally, there were marriages, they performed marriages in the chapel of the fleet. Now, the fleet prison was not big enough to hold everybody that was supposed to be confined there. So in practice, an awful lot of the people who were meant to be confined there as debtors could come and go. I'm really not sure how this was enforced. I wasn't there, so I'll never know properly. But they were in that general area. And they could perform their marriages wherever they liked. And very, very few of the marriages in practice were actually in the Fleet Prison Chapel. One of the reasons was this was specifically outlawed. Now, the problem about making law is that you have to be able to enforce it. And there were various attempts. One, you could stop people marrying in the Fleet Prison, but you, that didn't stop them marrying somewhere else. The church had quite a lot of clout, it could threaten to discipline its clergymen if you perform irregular or clandestine marriages without bans, without licenses, without witnesses, or in the middle of the night, or whatever breach of the rules it was. They could threaten that with their clergymen who were actually in livings. You could be thrown out of your living, thrown out of your parish, if you conducted clandestine marriages. And this would bring an end to the ones where a local parish was just raking it in by turning itself into a marriage shop. But of course this held absolutely no threat for the many ordained clergymen, plenty of them in the debtor's prison, who didn't have a living to be thrown out of. Similarly, if you were absolutely up to your ears in debt, threatening, with you, threatening you with a fine is no kind of punishment at all. Because if you haven't got any money, you can't pay it. And it doesn't matter how big the fine is, you still can't pay it. So it's not going to stop you doing anything. And in fact, this was a very nice cash-in-hand sort of business. So, if anything, it probably impelled people to do it even more. And although originally these were people who were confined in the fleet in, or in the rules of the fleet in that general area, because it became quite a growth business, it actually attracted people who were not prisoners, who were not debtors at all, but who thought this was quite a good bandwagon to jump on. And there were an awful lot of people whose names we know who were operating in that area. Now, who used these sort of marriages in the fleet and elsewhere, and why? They are notorious for the interesting cases like runaways, people eloping with 16-year-old heiresses, people trapping people into marriage to get their money, uh, all sorts of interesting and exotic stories. Probably the most basic one was getting sailors drunk and, and marrying them for their money because we're talking about sailors whose ships had just come in, they had just been paid. And, uh, you know, smallish pickings, but if you married enough sailors, you could get quite a lot of money. And th this was not necessarily marrying him so you had access to his money in a legal sense, but marrying him because it seemed like a good idea at the time, and he, would sober up, he, he wouldn't sober up until after you'd emptied his pockets and, and got away with the proceeds. So there was quite a, a, a turnover of those. And one of the fleet parsons 
was gave in evidence once in court that he would, when a ship came in, or a number of ships came in, he was known to have married about a thousand couples in a week. Now, he may have been exaggerating, but it does give you an idea of the sheer numbers of people. So, runaways, runaway heiresses, the, the, the stuff of romantic fiction and bodice rippers would be there. And also people who've got some sort of fraud in mind. There were a couple of interesting things based on real or imagined bits of law. Again, quite a popular one was if you were a woman and you were in debt, one of the upsides of the fact that women, married women had no property of their own and no legal rights was that if you were up to your ears in debt and then you married, your poor unfortunate husband then became the proprietor of the debt and had to pay it. So that was quite a nice dodge. And so all you had to do was persuade some poor sap to marry you and then make sure you got a nice official-looking certificate and then that was your, your legal get-out. So there were all sorts of things. Now, the other thing that you could do with this, is a bit more sophisticated, is when you've got an area that is very grey legally, you can do well, what I like to call the Mick Jagger. You may remember when uh, Jerry Hall was divorcing him and obviously going for her share of the uh, community property. He said, ah, yes, but we weren't properly married because they'd undergone some ceremony on an exotic beach somewhere. And he said, oh, no, no, it was just a party and a celebration. It wasn't a real marriage, so it doesn't count. Therefore, I don't have to give her her share. Well, this didn't actually go down at all well with the legal authorities, and he did have to cough up. But it was precisely the same ruse that some people could choose to use. If you were in two minds, if you thought, I may want to wriggle out of this at some later date... Having a marriage that might be in some way irregular gave you a sort of insurance policy that you could then challenge this at a later date with some success. Now, I mentioned the, the book by Lawrence Stone, The Road to Divorce, which is extremely interesting. There is a companion volume that goes with it. In fact, it's two, I think it's actually two books run together, which is called Uncertain Unions and Broken Lives. And that basically consists of the case studies that he used for, for the more scholarly books. So if you just want to read the stories, if you just want to see what, what would make a good mini-series, read Uncertain Unions and Broken Lives. There are some really interesting stories in there. Some of them about the, the basic uncertainty of how legal some of these marriages were. And the other one is about how people got out of them and also how they got out of perfectly legal marriages as well. It was usually the servants that dropped them in it, by the way. So it was popular with runaways, with fraudsters, with people who were up to no good in some way or other, or just the plain sort of reckless and dumb and impetuous. The drunker you are, the better idea it seems to be. Modern-day equivalent, I suppose, would be in, in Nevada, where you can, you can get married on, on a very, very brief whim and live to regret it the next morning. As far as I'm aware, the, you couldn't get married by an Elvis lookalike or similar in the fleet. But it must have been very much the same sort of thing, preying on uh, people when they're at their, at their drunk and vulnerable. These marriages, though, were not just for the, the, the dubious people at the bottom rungs of society. Sometimes they, they could be quite popular with people at all levels of society. Uh, and that includes people with, with very, very wealthy people, titled people, and they were not always up to no good. It wasn't always somebody duping somebody rich and famous into marrying them for their property. Sometimes it was just, it could be two people whose families did not particularly approve of that match who wanted to arrange for them to marry something that was more dynastically suitable. And they could run away there. And I suppose it must have had a certain amount of cachet. It was just so much more racy and exciting than going through the whole rigmarole of the big society wedding and it's a really good way of irritating your parents and that's always been very popular with with uh, with people and why did they use the fleet and it, its near relations it was quick this is a two-edged sword because you know marry in haste repent at leisure didn't become a saying for no reason at all it was cheap it was cheaper. The whole point of it, or one of the points of it, was that it was cheaper than paying to marry in church. So that was a big attraction. And it was private. 
Now, that didn't necessarily mean that you had something to hide. But anybody who has ever been married or been involved closely with somebody planning to get married will know that almost everybody gets to a point where they think, I just want to run away and get married somewhere really quietly. I've had enough of all this wedding planning, etc., etc. And to a certain extent, I'm sure that has always been the case. Even if it's not the big all-singing, all-dancing, bridezilla sort of wedding that some people go for nowadays, the fact that all of your friends and family are putting their oar in, generally interfering, telling you what you want and what's best for you, you, you really can have enough of that. So the fact that it was private, we just want to be married, we don't want all the rigmarole, that seems to me like a perfectly good reason for getting married somewhere nice and basic and no frills. If we've got any money, let's spend it on something nice and sensible, like a house and new carpets, not on a great big party for a lot of people we don't like. So not everyone who married um, in an irregular or clandestine fashion, in the fleet or elsewhere, was up to no good. It was quite a sensible, practical, attractive option for a lot of people. Now, the estimate that about a third of all marriages were clandestine or irregular in the uh, early um, 18th century is at best vague. It was the, the Commission into Marriage Law in 1868 that actually came up with that. But it does emphasise that it was a very large proportion, even if they're out by 10% or so either way, that is still a very large minority. And I do not believe that that large a proportion of the English population was up to no good, at least not all the time. Now, the records of these marriages are notoriously difficult to get at. Most of them, not all, but most of them are held here at the National Archives. And the records that we hold comprise registers from King's Bench, King's Bench Prison, which was uh, another uh, debtor's prison, same sort of idea as the fleet. It was the, uh, you know, the, the rules or the liberty around there was where the marriages took place. The Mint was another. Mayfair Chapel, St George Hanover Square. Now, that one was very popular. That was where the smart people went. If you were a rich person who was going to run away, you didn't necessarily go to the, 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 the scummy, unhygienic fleet area, and it was very unhygienic. Uh, the fleet ditch, very close to the river, not very nice at all. St. George Hanover Square, on the other hand, that was very desirable. And the Mayfair Chapel, St. George Hanover Square, actually opened in 1720, which is relatively late. So it had a fairly short life before it was uh, closed down by Lord Hardwick's Act. But it was set up in direct opposition to St. George Hanover Square Parish Church, which is the society wedding venue, much to the annoyance of the incumbent. There were lots of complaints about it. But until the law was finally changed under Lord Hardwick's Act, there was not a great deal that you could do about it. So that was the venue of choice for, for the smart uh, and the wealthy, but slightly bohemian. The fleet itself, though, and the area around it was much the largest place and much the largest number of registers that we have relate to the fleet and the area around it. Uh, the Mayfair Chapel, incidentally, we have a couple of registers for that, but the majority of the marriages there are recorded um, in a register which is now in Westminster Archives, although it is also in print and we do have access one way and another to the indexes and the, uh, to that. But the, the fleet was much the most popular one out of all of them, and that's why that they are collectively known as the fleet, even though the marriages themselves may have taken place at various other places around London. And in very rare occasions, you would get a record of a, one of the fleet parsons at the request of the parties going all the way out into Sussex or Surrey or somewhere like that, a long way from London to perform a marriage. So they really could be anywhere. Now, the records that we have here, that I mentioned at the beginning, they come in basically three different kinds. There are registers themselves, and this is an example of one of the original ones. Normally you will only see these things on film for the moment, but that's what one of the original ones looks like, uh, and it does give you a good insight into why it is often difficult to transcribe things and indexes are not always terribly accurate. They can be very difficult to read. 
I mean, that looks like a sort of marriage is performed by Nigel Molesworth with all the, the ink blots on it. It's actually not too difficult to read once you get used to it, but it's as typical as you will get of the kind of registers that these were. They are often these very tall, thin notebooks, and you will see that there is also a lot of figures on there which will be an account of some kind. There were all sorts of things you could charge for. You could charge people for the marriage... And you could charge people for all the accoutrements that went with it. If you were marrying at a tavern, which you very often were, then, of course, there was a fee for all the food and drink. But as well as charging to perform the marriage, you could charge for issuing a certificate of that marriage because it was often very important to the parties to have an official-looking piece of paper to take away that would prove that they were married. And there is only one known example of a, pro- of a fleet certificate which uh, you, you see it as an illustration in quite a lot of books because it is pretty much the only one. And there is a copy of it in the, in the handout, and it looks lovely and very official. It's nothing of the kind. It's just rather beautifully composed, but it's got no particular legal validity. looks much nicer than a lot of the, the parish register marriage entries that you would get um, at the time. So it's quite a nice-looking thing. There are also notebooks. Now, just like a lot of regular clergymen... The clergyman in the fleet would keep notebooks of the marriages. Now, again, we weren't there looking over their shoulders, so we can never know for absolute certain. But for two reasons you might have done this. You would register a marriage, put it in the, in the register book, and you would want to keep the register book somewhere nice and safe for future use so that you could refer to it and of course charge people when they came to get subsequent proof of the marriage because they'd lost the original one or some descendant needed to prove that their grandparents were really married and so on and so on so you might keep a notebook with a duplicate of all these things just so that the 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 register could be kept somewhere safely conversely you might have a notebook where you noted things down at the time and then copied it up nicely, and I use the term relatively here, into the actual register itself. And I'm sure both things happened. So it's commonplace to say that the register, the actual original register of any event, is going to be the best, the the, the proper copy. And a notebook will be a poor substitute. But I'm sure in some cases, and we, we have no real way of knowing which they were, the notebook maybe a better record because it was the one made at the time. So the moral of that is if there's more than one record, look at both. There are also a few indexes, and I mean a very few. There are something like 20 pieces in in the series RG7 where these records are kept that that are solely consist of indexes to the, the registers themselves. Now, These records, various ones, the registers, the notebooks and the indexes, there are roughly 300 registers, just just under that, and indexes, about 20 pieces that are indexes, and the rest of the series, which goes up to over 800 pieces, are notebooks of one kind or another. Not all of them are notebooks of recording actual marriages. There are various account books and registers of subsequent searches that that were done and certificates that were issued much later, which is why you will see, if you look in the catalogue and the description, this series actually goes up to 1777. And that's slightly misleading if you read it as fleet marriages up to 1777, because there are no marriages beyond 1754, but there are some documents which are dated later than that. And these are the ones which are count books, notebooks, registers of searches or such like, So the marriages themselves only go up to the the very beginning of 1754. Now, I said they are mostly on microfilm, but there are, and that's in series RG7, but there are two registers, and this is a page from one of them, which are in a completely different series altogether, and that is Prob 18. Now, Prob 18 is a probate series. It's actually the records of the probate court where there were disputed probates. And the reason that there are two registers in that is because two registers were produced as evidence in a probate dispute and they were kept. 
There are only two of them that we know of, and they are, that's why they are separate from the main series. Now, I said they are mostly on microfilm, except for those two original registers, which we've got facsimile copies of. But they are being digitised. And this is the sort of hot-off-the-press bit, which I only found out on Friday afternoon. I think it takes a great optimist to ring the office after 5 o'clock on a Friday, just before a bank holiday. But it shows what a sad act I am, that I was there and I answered the phone. And it was actually from the website BMD Registers, who have already digitised uh, a lot of our non-parochial collection. And they are very, very close to putting the RG7, the fleet registers, online. So I have had uh, a look at their test site. It is in testing at the moment. Don't know exactly when it's going to be released, but it, it looks quite good. So I have, I have seen it. Um, watch this space. So as soon as it's available, we will, uh, uh, there'll be an announcement on our website and also on BMD registers. I'll come back to that a little bit. The registers come in a variety of different guises. And this is one of the things that makes this series very, very confusing and very tricky to use. A lot of registers were kept by the officiating ministers, who are commonly known as the celebrants. And there are a number of these men who were very, very prolific and performed possibly thousands of marriages. Many of them obviously kept their own registers because this was a, a nice source of income you could... For, issue certificates at the time and subsequently. There were also lots and lots of marriage houses. On the, on, on the map that I showed you, uh, I've actually been able to plot the locations of quite a lot of these uh, marriage houses. I haven't been able to identify all of them, but I've been able to identify quite a number. And they were typically coffee houses and taverns around about the area of the fleet, although they did stretch quite, quite a, a long way. But in that general area... Now, a lot of these places were very, very popular and lots of marriages took place there. So this was another opportunity. The people who ran these taverns, as well as providing the food and drink and obviously getting a nice steady income from that, they could also charge to keep registers. If you think about it, you got married in the fleet, in haste or not, and then sometime later you needed legal proof of that. Well, you wouldn't necessarily be able to track down the man who married you because he could be a very movable feast indeed. He may be in a different debtor's prison altogether by the time you went back to find him. But you could go back to the coffee house or the tavern to make inquiries. So that would be a good place to get uh, a copy of your supposed marriage certificate. So a lot of the marriage houses actually kept registers of their own. There were also some freelance register keepers. And these were people who spotted a good opportunity. If you were a clergyman who didn't perform all that many marriages, you might not keep an actual register book of your own. You might just be doing the occasional favour for a friend or dip into the murky world of clandestine marriages when you were a little bit short, but most of the time you were fine. Alternatively, you might have a coffee house or a tavern that was very occasionally used, maybe a bit of a distance away from the, the, the main popular area. So you might not think it was worthwhile keeping your own register. So there were the freelance register keepers who would record marriages on request for a fee, issue certificates. So it is perfectly possible then that a particular marriage could be recorded in several different places. And some of them were. So you could have an entry in your clergyman's own register. There could be an entry in the marriage house register, if that also had one. And there still might have been a freelance register keeper buzzing around or copying from an existing register. It was a very much a sort of black economy. And there was something like this black market in, in registers, which uh, leads to even more confusion. Because some of the things, some of the entries in these registers are known to be forgeries. Fortunately, we know what some of them were, but it's taken quite extensive work by researchers to find out and probably haven't even scraped the, sur the surface of it. There are fraudulent entries. 
because if you've got people who are really only in it to make a buck, then if you need to prove that you were married at a particular date, even if you weren't, quite a good way of doing that is going and bribing somebody to put an extra entry in a register. And if you look at some of these registers, some of them are in chronological order, some of them are rather nice, but some of them are very scrappy, and you've got all sorts of entries in odd orders, some of the pages are upside down. Any amount of scope for inserting entries, and of course changing what was originally there. I mean, it was said that some register keepers deliberately left spaces just so they could do that. And that seems entirely credible to me. You know, if you're, if you're going to go into that sort of trade, you might as well cover all the angles and figure out all the possible ways uh, of making money out of it, depending on your particular level of morality. And, of course, there were lots and lots of duplicate entries for the reasons I've already said. And that's, of course, just the different sorts of registers. Don't forget that you also have the notebooks. So you might have something in three different kinds of registers and also in a couple of notebooks. I have found entries that are in five times. I don't know what the proportion is yet, but I'm going to carry on looking because it's quite an interesting game to play and it is now something that is just about feasible. In the past, it's very difficult to do this. For one thing, it's very, very difficult to know exactly how many marriages are in there. All you will ever see in print, or hear from anybody, is a guess. Because that's all you can do. With any kind of register, even if it's a bit irregular, you can work out roughly how many entries are on a page, how many pages there are in the thing, and you will get a rough idea. But if you know that there are duplicates, but you don't know exactly how many, it's extremely difficult to estimate what the total is. The only way to do that is to look at every entry on every page of every register and every notebook and then see if they're duplicated. Now, bearing in mind that this series goes up to 800 and odd pieces, and some of these pieces contain more than one register, that is a very, very tall order. So although there was some a very, very interesting research done in the past, and by the past I mean the 19th and 20th centuries, not just recent stuff, nobody has ever had the capacity to look at the whole lot and really make a proper judgment. You, you can make a bit of a guess, but it, there just isn't, uh, it's just not possible manually to go through all this. But I'll come back to that in a minute. Now, just a word about the indexes. This, this uh, illustration here is actually an index of the, the, the one that we don't have. And this is from the, the printed register for the, uh, the Mayfair Chapel, St George's Hanover Square. This is published by the Harlane Society, and this is the register that is, is at uh, Westminster Archives now. But there are indexes in a whole variety of different places. First of all, there are the ones I've already mentioned, which are in the RG7 series, in about 20 or so pieces. There are also some indexes which are integral with the actual piece or register itself. This is actually indicated in the catalogue. If you look at a particular piece, it will tell you if it includes an index. And usually, if there is an index to it somewhere else in, in the series. But it, it's quite tricky. I have a, a, an annotated paper copy of the catalogue with all sorts of links and arrows and things on it, and it's quite difficult to figure out. But there are some contemporary indexes that were kept by the register keepers, or soon after them anyway. There are, to the surprise of some people, quite a lot of these marriages indexed on the IGI, International Genealogical Index, on the Family Search website. And I say on the website advisedly, because although there are older versions of the IGI, there's the old Fiche version, which hasn't been added to since 1992, and there is also a CD version, which is extremely, incredibly hard to track down these days. It's the online version, which has had a lot of entries added to it in the last few years, and these include many thousands of fleet registers. Now, they are extremely difficult to identify, and I don't wish to get too technical and boring about this, but if you ever use the IGI and you find an entry on there, 
you will find at the bottom of the full details there will be a batch number, and there will usually be a description of the original source. So you can work out what this is an entry from, if it's from a register of some kind or if it's just somebody's individual submission. Unfortunately, a lot of the stuff that has gone on relatively recently, all you will get is a batch number. And there is no way that you can tie that to an original, an actual register or a source without doing a lot of clever stuff and guesswork uh, and, and general investigation. The only people who can unravel that are actually the Latter-day Saints themselves, the Family History Library in Salt Lake City. But even then, it's quite fiddly for them to do. But I have been able to identify quite a number of these, just short of 161,000 um, entries uh, have appeared in the IGI. If you are interested, if you want to know one when you spot one, obviously they're going to be prior to 1754. They're going to be marriages. They're going to be in London. Now, some of them just say London. Some of them, much more confusingly, say Westminster. I have absolutely no idea why this is. The fleet is not anywhere near Westminster, and we don't have enough St George Hanover Square registers to account for that. But that is how some of them have been designated, and that accounts for probably getting on towards half of them. They start with, the batches start with I, and there is no further description. So if you see something that looks like that, uh, then it might just be a fleet register. But I've had very little success in identifying positively which, bat which actual registers they come from. Some of the um, baptisms that took place in the fleet, they're also uh, in some of these mysterious eye batches. So just, just a thought. Incidentally, the other, uh, when I mentioned the forgeries, we have a book which is quite rare because it was published a number of years ago. And it's typescript and was published in a fairly short run as far as I can tell. But it's called The Fleet Forgeries by Berwick Lloyd, which a few years ago we actually thought we'd lost this altogether. Fortunately, it turned up again, so we've now photocopied it, so we've got an insurance copy. But this, this was published by Berwick Lloyd and, uh, the, in 1988. And he did extensive and exhaustive work on proving that at least one register was an absolute forgery. And the, the reason you can actually tell this is remarkably simple. If you've got two registers with exactly the same sets of names in, or very nearly the same, but with two completely different time spans, like they're several decades apart, you smell a rat. Something has got to be wrong with one of them. Now, the best explanation for this is that when these registers were being collected by the government to try and establish how many people did get married under these peculiar clandestine irregular marriages, ever enterprising, the people who held the registers thought, well, if they're prepared to buy this off me, why don't I knock out another couple of copies of completely spurious registers? And rather than go to the effort of inventing names, it's just so much easier to copy the names you've got and then lob 30 years off the dates. Perfect. So that is another reason why some of these entries, many of these entries, are um, at the very least a bit dodgy. But they're not all. I mean, I have, I have to go back to the... The sheer number of them, not everybody who got married in the fleet or any other of the um, irregular marriage venues was up to no good. But you do have to treat the records with great caution. There are published indexes such as the, the one, uh, the, the Harlane Society one and also this uh, Berwick Lloyd one, which is uh, a complete index. And there is another one by John Southenden Byrne. This is a 19th century publication. It is an index of sorts. It's got lots and lots of entries in it although he seems to have plucked them from various different registers. I'm not quite sure where exactly they came from, and he's not, he's not very helpful about telling you. But there are a lot of fleet marriages indexed, or at least listed, in his, in his book. There is also an index, which we, again, we have on hard copy, which was produced a number of years ago. 
And it just lists brides and grooms whose parishes of origin were in Kent, Surrey and Sussex. And the reason we know this is that although there is a lot wrong with these marriages and for all sorts of reasons uh, you have to treat them with suspicion, the actual content of the registers is often very good indeed. For something that was unofficial and non-standard, they are remarkably consistent in a lot of ways and many of the registers include not only the parishes of origin of the bride and groom, whether they were bachelor, spinster, widow, whatever, but also, in most cases, the occupation of the groom. And in the case of the very, very many sailors, the name of the ship. So there's a lot of information in them. And if you look at parish register marriages at that time, they're nowhere near as good for the most part. So you win some, you lose some. You, you, you can be more certain of what's in a, a church register. It's more likely to be true and not a forgery. But you get so much more detail in the fleet ones. It's agonising, isn't it? But there is an index, which again we've got in printed copies there outside, of brides and grooms from Kent, Surrey and Sussex. And there is another much smaller one for brides and grooms from Hertfordshire as well. That's been produced much more recently and I think you can, uh, that's still available. And then there's a rather odd one. It's not strictly speaking an index to the actual registers but it's a part of a wonderful index that's being produced by the Friends of Westminster Archives. Now, one of the reasons that you might need proof of the date and place of your marriage is not just if you were a rich person and you wanted to establish that your children were indeed legitimate and entitled to inherit and so on, but if you were right at the other end of society. If you were poor and you were applying for parish relief, the parish authorities would interrogate you you might be plainly a pauper in need of relief, but what they were very keen on doing was establishing whose pauper exactly were you. Are we obliged to give you relief, or can we find a reason to send you somewhere else? And settlement examinations are the most wonderful documents. If you've got poor ancestors, they're probably going to appear in some of these at some point. And there is a fantastic collection of them at Westminster Archives in the St. Martin in the Fields records. Well, to establish if you were a pauper belonging to a particular place, they wanted to find out what was your... Everybody had a place of settlement. And that wasn't necessarily where you were born. There were a number of ways you could acquire a settlement in another place. And one of those was by, if you were a woman, was by marrying. You then took on the settlement of your husband. And one of the questions that was always asked in a settlement examination was, are you married? And if so, who did you marry, where and when? And in a lot of these testimonies, people in St. Martin in the Fields said, oh, we were married in the fleet in such and such a year, such and such a time. Now, some of them will have been telling the truth and some of them won't. Again, it's a sort of two-edged sword. Because they would have known that the fleet marriages had a certain reputation... You could say, well, we're not married, but if we say we are, they can't prove we're not. So there may have been an element of that. But the, the volunteers at Westminster Archives have extracted from their index a list of all the people who claimed to have been married in the fleet. And as far as possible, they have even identified the particular entries. Now, there are very, very few of these that they've been able to do, but it's a pretty sterling effort, and... The results of that, again, they're um, on the shelves outside. So it's worth having a look at. It's not, strictly speaking, an index to the fleet registers. If you find something in there, you may or may not be able to track it down in our registers, although you might have fun trying. But it's an interesting slant on it and worth including here. Well, I mentioned that uh, all levels of society, and this, is, and this is the reason I put up the one from the Harlane Society, this is His Grace Henry Bridges, Duke of Chandos, married in the... Uh, Mayfair Chapel, married by Alexander Keith, who was absolutely notorious. He eventually got thrown into the fleet prison for debt, although he didn't, he never actually conducted any marriages in the fleet. He had someone on the, he was directing operations from there, he had someone else performing the marriages in his chapel. But he was one of the most notorious ones. He was um, clandestine uh, and irregular marriages for the gentry. And uh, you don't get much more gentry than that the uh, Duke, Dukes of Chandos were 
the, the wealthiest family in England. Very briefly, uh, I think the first generation made a phenomenal amount of money and the next generation drank it and spent it and generally uh, frittered it away. But for a while, the, the, uh, the Bridges family was so wealthy that they lent money to the king. So they were um, patrons of the uh, clandestine marriages and they were not the only ones. Now, I mentioned that these are being digitised. And this is the site, BMD Registers, who already, you may have already used this site. You have free access to it here. It is a pay-per-view site, and it's already got on it the registers, our non-parochial registers from RG4 and 5 and 6, which are the Quaker registers. And the RG7, the fleet registers, are going to be added very, very soon. As I said, they're actually at the testing stage. So there are still a few things to uh, iron out. So hopefully it will be very soon, but I don't know exactly when. Now, I said it's a pay-per-view site if you are using it off-site. Now, if you're going to use this a lot, and the way the fleet registers are arranged with all the duplicates, you may well find that if you're using it, you will want to look at lots and lots of entries. If you're doing that on pay-per-view, that can work out fairly expensive. There is an option to have a, a subscription. You can't do that through BMD Registers itself, but if you go to their, their main site, which is the genealogist, uh, and there is a link on the site there, on, on the right-hand side, it, it's, it says for credit-free access to non-conformist records, then you can go to this, the genealogist. And the great thing about this is that for the first time, it is actually going to be possible to make a decent estimate based on actual numbers of how many marriages are in this series. It's going to take some doing, but it is going to be feasible for the first time. You can try it by various searches. I've only had the weekend to play with it, and I've discovered a, a few quite interesting things. Now, I apologise for the quality of this next slide. It really is not built to go on the big screen, and you won't be able to read a bit of that, unfortunately. Um, but I think it's worth including because it does illustrate a couple of useful things. One, we identified that there was going to be a problem with this series because if you've ever tried to use it on microfilm, you may have noticed that you get bits, stripes along the side, which are blank, appear, appear to be blank or unreadable. Now, the reason for this is these original documents have at some point been mended. Mended using proper archival quality tape, which is all very good, but unfortunately it has a slightly shiny surface. So when you film it, the light bounces off the shiny bit and renders what's underneath it virtually illegible, if not completely illegible. Whereas if you look at the original, it's quite clear. Now, because BMD registers are our actual uh, licensed internet associate partners on this, they have actually got the option to go to the originals where they need to and rescan them. But what they've done in many cases is with some very clever electronic imaging technology, which I don't begin to understand, they have actually been able to enhance a lot of the bits that you can't really see easily with the naked eye on the films, but they have managed to bring them out on the, uh, on the scans. Now, with varying success, most of it is surprisingly good, but... There will be bits where it, it is still unreadable. But it's, um, I was quite pleasantly surprised at how well it worked. And so these, the, the, the shots that are on the screen are what I, I took from the screen and dumped and uh, fairly quickly. So I'm sure they could be made better. But trust me, looked at on the small screen on the site, they do look a lot better than that. But the reason I chose these two particular ones, which you just have to trust me as for what it says on them, is it's one quite nice example of duplicate entries. One of them is a register for a specific place, which is the, 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 called the St. Bride's Chapel. And another one is a register relating to one particular celebrant. And although not all of the marriages are duplicated, there are several marriages that appear on both of these. Now, the other thing about them, which is an added thing that you have to look out for, is that... The details, pretty much the same in both cases. The names, the occupations, they're the same. You may get very small variants in spelling, but essentially the same entry, same details. However, the dates. These entries 
The one on the left is from 1750, and the one on the right is from 1751. But they've got the same entries with the same days and the same months. Now, all the entries I've found like this, where you've got what appears to be the same entry in two years, all the ones I've found so far have been in the first three months of the year. Because this was just before we changed from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar. And some people anticipated it and had already been using the more modern system. And afterwards, I'm sure some people doggedly clung to the old one. And what we seem to have here, and in a few other examples I've found, is one register which seems to be operating on the old calendar and one which is operating on the new. I could be completely wrong. It could be a careless forgery. I don't know yet. I haven't spent long in another few weekends checking it. But that seems to be the case, and I found a number of entries like that. So these are not the same as the ones where there is a whole decade's difference between the entries. It's a pure forgery. These are two probably fairly genuine copies of the same entries, but using different dating systems. Possibilities now are, are very considerable. There are all sorts of things we'll be able to do with this when it's fully released and everybody can start crawling all over it and having a good look and finding out all sorts of things about it. For what it's worth, so far, the quality of the transcription seems to be reasonably good, I mean, especially considering the state of some of the originals. The one on the right is rather nice. That, that's quite regular. The one on the left is a little bit more typical, and some of the other examples I've showed you are really, really horrible. So there is a, there's a lot of variation there, but generally speaking, the quality of the transcription is quite good. So I, I'm expecting great things of this. Personally, I can't wait for it to be sort of completely uh, unleashed uh, and uh, have, a, have a real go at it. So that's something for you to look forward to. And I wasn't expecting to have a stop press piece of news to put in at the end of it. This event was recorded live on the 26th of August 2008 at the National Archives Q. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.